All right, I think we're all set to begin. Welcome, you guys, to the brand new podcast by Young Americans Against Socialism. It is going to be called Survivors of Socialism, and I think the title and the name is pretty clear. Each episode of this podcast is going to feature a really special conversation with somebody who can personally attest to the experience that you go through when you live under socialism. And so I am just so excited for this. I've got to say it's probably the most requested content that I have gotten since founding Young Americans Against Socialism uh, about two years ago in August 2019. Everybody's been asking for a Survivors podcast. And so this just, of course, had to happen. It just took us a little bit to get the equipment and everything we needed to get started because this is a really big expansion in terms of production for our small little mighty team. Uh, I just thank you guys so much for all the support that you've given us so far. And I want to start this podcast in a strong way. Of course, the way that we started in the beginning was with a video of my friend Daniel DiMartino. He's from uh, Venezuela, and he did one of the first YAS videos ever. I talk about it in the episode with him a little bit. But basically, before I launched the organization, Daniel came with me to film his footage, and we did it at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and some of our first memories before launching the organization were with Daniel taking fun headshots and just trying to get like random B-roll footage and pictures of us hanging out and doing things because we didn't exactly know what was going to happen or what kind of content we were going to make from it, but we just wanted to have a bunch of material because we were together in Washington, and so... That was just such a fun memory, and of course, launching this new step of the nonprofit, I knew that we had to ask Daniel to do this for us first. And so the first episode is going to feature Daniel DiMartino. He's coming up soon. And again, you guys, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Bear with us as we kind of work out the kinks. I don't exactly know, but I know this is going to be a, a learning curve for us. Uh, I have transitioned into a new studio since we filmed these first interviews, these first handful of um, people. And so hopefully we'll start to transition into a more consistent theme in uh, a few episodes down the road. But for now, we've got some wonderful stories. We've got some wonderful guests and I can't wait to get started. With that being said, let's go into episode one featuring the story and the great conversation about how his experience and what's going through America right now are quite related and what his thoughts are on the future of this country that he's in now, uh, my friend Daniel DiMartino. Let's get it. <laughs> we uh, are trained Marxists. And I was speaking to this uh, young person from Arizona. He grabbed a book and he said, it's like Mao's Red Book. And I was like, man, that's what I was thinking. And it was just really cool to hear him make that connection. I was like, how about you buy like 10 to 15 of these books and you all have like a youth, like, organizing group where you talk about it. All right, so Daniel, you are literally the OG, the original participant in our content for Young Americans Against Socialism. You're the first person to ever do a video with us. You told your story of coming from Venezuela. And some of my favorite memories are when, before we launched the organization in August 2019, I think a couple months before, you and I were hanging out on the lawn in front of uh, Congress and we were filming just promos and, and fun pictures and videos and stuff to use once we launched the organization. So you've really 
I've known you for quite a long time now and coronavirus has prevented us from really seeing each other lately, but you are, have just been such a great friend and I really admire you so much. So thank you for doing the podcast. If you could just maybe explain who you are and what you're all about for the people that might not have seen your original video with us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Morgan. And likewise to you, you know, I love what you and your organization do uh, because I think that this is how we can make a, a real impact in, in America and, and keep it the country that I love and, and, and that I came to, right? Um, look, uh, so some background on me, I'm 22 years old. I was born in Maracay, Venezuela, and I finished high school at 17. That is the regular, you know, there's 11 years of high school in, in Venezuela. And then I came to the United States on a full scholarship to study economics in Indiana University. Um, the, the reason I, I left Venezuela and, and, or I wanted to leave Venezuela for a very long time when I was a kid was just the destruction that the government caused. And I'm talking about everything from incredibly high crime rates. Um, the highest murder rate in the planet was in my hometown of Caracas, where, where I was living. And to inflation, the highest inflation rate in the world as well. So that means that prices just kept going up fast and fast. So something that costs $1 today, $2 next week, for the following, 8 16 and so without an end. Uh, well, well, your wages don't don't go up as fast, right? So my parents' income uh, depreciated in in real terms from thousands of dollars at the beginning of the year uh, of of the century, the year two thousand approximately, to less than a hundred dollars to just a few dollars per day uh, by twenty sixteen when I when I left, and and so add to that constant blackouts. Sometimes we went weeks without water. Sometimes I had to make lines for food for hours. Uh, sometimes they denied to me the ability to buy food because I didn't have a, a or national ID and that's the rationing system that they use. Imagine if you had to show up your ID just to buy bread in the supermarket. It's ridiculous. Um, so all of that, just you don't want to live in a society like that, right? And so I, I thought that I wanted to come to America because... It was a society that was based on, on the values that I believed in, freedom, individual responsibility, uh, a, a huge share of the population that, that is also faithful. And, and, and I think that that's the beautiful thing about the United States and what I wanted to come and I was blessed with the opportunity to come. And now I'm doing a PhD in economics. I finished my undergrad in Indiana and I haven't moved to New York, but I will move soon. Oh my gosh, no biggie, right? I, that was so funny. So for people who aren't aware, Daniel and I just did an interview and he's just listing off all of his amazing accomplishments. Oh, come on. <laughs> like PhD, moving to New York City, escaped a socialist country. You, you moved to uh, Texas now. You're, you're doing well. We, yeah, doing it's funny. Well. I just moved from New York and you're moving to New York. But I, I've also, what's fun is like, I've heard the old New York might come back, like the Rudy Giuliani age of New York City, where it was, you know, a better place at that time. And it's finally because people are moving out and there's more accessibility to living there and to renting there. And the prices are going down because everybody's trying to get out. And so people were saying, if you've always wanted to live in New York City, now is really the time for that like once in a lifetime experience. And uh, I was actually considering doing that before I decided to move to Texas. Um, so I kind of want to start out because I was just talking to Gabby Franco and I don't know. Have you met her before? I haven't met her in, in person, but we've chatted online. Mm -hmm. She's fantastic. And we did an original video with her uh, 
and she's going to be on the podcast as well. And she was talking about how there's just such a stark difference between her experience because she uh, probably was in her teens in like the 1990s. And then when she was early twenties, she left Venezuela in like 2004. And so her experience was growing up with a great childhood. She never had to need or want for anything. And all of a sudden there was just this drastic change. And so she was saying she feels so bad for the generation right after her people like you who had a completely different experience of what it's like to be a child and a teenager in Venezuela. Can you explain what it was like for you? Because Gabby did a great job of talking about her transition. Um, Can you paint a picture of what that was like to come of age in a country like this? Yes. Well, you know, something very powerful was that, you know, as a teenager, you, you go to parties, you celebrate your, your friend's birthdays and, and you dance, it's at night. And, and, and that's a, a nice thing, right? About your teenage years, high school. Um, our parties started being hosted in the afternoons and during daylight only because of how dangerous it was to leave at night because somebody would come and kidnap you. Um, and then just ask for a ransom for a few thousand dollars and that's what your life is worth. And if not, they kill you, your parents don't give a, a ransom. So, so it, it, they call that ex- express kidnapping. It was a term that had to be coined because it was in one day and in less than 24 hours you were returned home if you paid and if not, you were disappeared. Um, oh, yeah, there's have to look that up, geez. It's a whole industry of crime. So that, that was one thing, um, you know, Sometimes I was in school and the school lost power. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes people get happy because, uh, you know, that means that school usually got canceled. Uh, but but they're not sorry for education, right? Uh, or when a professor uh, that was giving a class received a text from a friend in the supermarket down the street that there was chicken, or chicken arrived in the supermarket. The professor would suspend class and leave to buy chicken. Oh. I don't blame them. They, they have to sense. for their family, but yeah. what are the consequences for a society? Yeah. Well, speaking of education, what was your experience like? Had the Chavez regime, had they really taken root in the education system at this point? Had the socialists put a lot of indoctrination in or did you get a good understanding of the world around you as well? Because I was talking, Ray, who I, we were mentioning earlier who did an awesome video with us. He's from Cuba. And he was saying he had no idea that there were even other countries. All he heard about was the USSR and America, the evil empire as the, the the Cubans put it. And so did you have an understanding of, you know, the globe around you? Well, I did. Um, First, I I had the opportunity to go to a private school for free in Venezuela Mm -hmm. because my uncle worked in the private school. uh, And that's one of the benefits they give the workers. Um, so I, I, I had a relatively good education, not as good as even a, a public school student in America would have, right? Yeah. Um, okay. not, not the same level at all. Not, I, I, I learned English because uh, I, I went in the afternoons with some friends to, to get a, to, with in our teacher's place, but not because the school taught me. Um, so you just want to learn English? You would go up to an after school session? My, my parents wanted me to, to learn English since I was like in fourth grade. And, and so a bunch of fourth graders and me would go to the home of our English teacher in the afternoons. And then she would teach us because she had lived in America many years back. Oh, that um, good thing you did. I mean, that's pretty great. I'm yeah. Confused. Like, I mean, right now, private schools, homeschooling, especially, and charter schools, school choice in general is being attacked act by the left. They want to get rid of it. They want to make it as hard as possible. Was that the case in Venezuela? How did you even have a private school? I'm kind of shocked. 
Well, Venezuela had private schools like most Latin American countries, especially religious schools by the Catholic Church, and those were the best uh, of all schools. Mine was secular um, because it was previously it was a nuns school that it was only girls, but like 20 years ago, it was uh, you know the nuns just sold it to to a businessman, and then he turned it into a secular private school uh, for all genders. Uh, but there are still many uh, gender segregated Catholic schools in Venezuela for both boys and girls, and they're really high quality. Everybody wants to be there, uh, but there's no school choice for people who are in public schools. That's where most people go. Uh, and yes, there is a, a high degree of indoctrination, um, and, and that's a big problem. I, I, I also had the opportunity to travel to the United States when I was a kid, and I saw the stark difference between America, you know, Florida mainly, and, and so between Florida and Venezuela, of course I loved Florida and the United States. You know, it was safe. I could walk in the streets you know, with, with, with tranquility that I wouldn't be attacked by, by criminals. Uh, I could buy anything I wanted, not, well, I mean, limited by the finances, but I, I didn't have to make lines. I had electricity. I live in a dignified life. Yeah, no, it, that's something that always stands out to me, that sense of safety and security that we take for granted here. Uh, somebody was telling me a story from Venezuela, Carla, actually, I don't know if you've met Carla, um, about how she finally made it to America and she went to make a phone call in a car and got down under the um, little cabinet, I guess, I can't remember what it's called, uh, under the passenger side seat. And she would try and hide to do the call. And the person in the car there was like, what are you doing? And she was like, well, you can do this here? Because in Venezuela, like if you take a phone out, it's going to be stolen from you right away, right? Yes. So if you're in a car and you have, uh, and you, you know, you have valuables or something that are, that people can see from outside, it will be motorcycles who will park next to you. They will take a gun out and, they, and then they will ask you for your belongings. My, my cousin got robbed several times like that. Um, the last time I went to Venezuela, I had a terrible experience. And I think that God protected us because there's no explanation for what happened. We were coming from my uh, cousin's birthday party. This was in 2017. And it was a, a closed street, no, no exit. So we were going out. There was only one entry, one exit, that same street. And a motorcycle stands in the middle, uh, points a gun at us. And my dad, you know, like, you know, uh, stops the car. We think that, you know, he's just going to rob us or he's going to kill us. And then the guy falls from his motorcycle. He falls to the ground. And then that's where my dad just accelerates and we escape. So, you know, we say, you know, God blessed us that the man fell and, and we could be safe, but it, it's, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah. Well, it, that actually reminds me, I was talking to somebody in Atlanta, they defunded the police there and and they're really suffering. There's so much crime they can't keep up. And so people apparently in Atlanta just roll their windows down and don't leave any valuables in the car. And I've even heard that people will leave little bowls of candy on the console in the center of the car because it's just so frequent that people will smash windows to rummage through cars. It's cheaper and safer, honestly, to keep the windows down. People can just rummage, realize that there's nothing and then take a candy. It's become like a joke at that point. And it's so frequent that that's the case. And apparently there's also this, there's this group that goes around the streets and is so fast at taking off the tires of a car. It's like faster or as fast as the NASCAR groups that go around and do the tires at the races and the police can't catch up. They're that good. <laughs> and so I'm hearing these stories. I'm like, we sound so crazy. And that sounds like Venezuela. I can tell you some things <laughs> crazy. like. <laughs> and uh, like, as a young woman, especially like when I, after in June, 
2020, my first speech invite after, you know, the riots of Black Lives Matter and Antifa over the summer, my first speech was in September in DC. And it was a couple weeks after we saw that guy run up and smack an older white man with a brick. Do you remember that footage? I I remember seeing it and I'm like, I've got to go to this area alone for a speech on Capitol Hill. And I don't even feel safe on Capitol Hill. I was so nervous. And so I, people take for granted that in America, usually thanks to our system of, of policing, we, we are fairly safe and secure and it's taken for granted. But what were you going to say? What was that story? Yeah. Well, yeah. Policing is incredibly important. That's why there's so much crime in Venezuela. It's a combination of uh, lack of standards for the police and the police themselves become criminals in Venezuela. Um, and that's a huge problem. They kidnap people, they rob, they, they kill. Um, they, they're part of the regime security forces against political opponents, but it's also that every time good policemen capture the criminals, they never go to jail in Venezuela. Or from the jail, they actually organize the crimes and the jails are crime hotspots where they, they operate the, the gangs. But, you know, things have become so scarce and the economic situation is so bad that there are now bans that take women on the street with long hair and cut their hair with huge scissors to sell their hair. Do you think that this is from a movie, but this is happening? I'm not surprised. That's uh, cars. They don't. They don't break into cars to steal things from inside because now people are so poor that even the people who have cars or or they're smart, they're not going to leave anything inside. They actually take the battery of the car out mm. because they, there are no batteries in Venezuela, so they became valuable things to steal, uh, or or they just take parts out. Yeah, that's what they would do. Jeez, oh, I mean, a lot of this. I think back, like we just did this interview about American values and capitalism versus socialism together. But I think about like our foundation as a country, it's rule of law, it's a system of justice, it's economic freedom via capitalism. uh, And it's a system of checks and balances. And so I see checks and balances as first of all, like a check on the power of the government is our economic and financial power as individuals. And that gives us political power. Um, But When we think of how unique America is with our system of accountability, where our system of government creates different channels for people who are bad actors to be held accountable. And hearing your stories about Venezuela, there's clearly no way, especially because it's a socialist government, they control everything. They control the policing, they control the system of justice, and there's no way to hold these people accountable because they already have all of the power. No one can provide that check. No one can hold them accountable when there is wrongdoing. And that's what I am so appreciative of in America. And I think that that's a strong play for young Americans to talk to them about this, about how unique we are for having this, for a balance of power, a check on the system. Uh, Did you notice that at all, especially with the justice system there? I mean, we have a lot of problems here in America now. People are mad, but what was it like in Venezuela? Well, uh, and you know, I told you that the police themselves commit the crimes. Uh, My aunt was kidnapped one time and she was released eventually. Um, and when she was released, she went to uh, put the, like the, the, go to the police station to report the crime. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, she saw that one of the police officers in the station was one of her kidnappers. Really? And that's extremely common in Venezuela. Policemen by, something day, you want to see. by night. Um, you know, it's a way for them to get more income for the the members of the police force. And it's also, you know, but, you know, some people say that it's about 
money that you know they don't get paid enough i i don't think that anybody who's a good person would kidnap somebody for money like that or threaten their life you know this is not stealing food this is nothing like that this is violence but you know so so there's no justice right the some judges who do justice and and sentence the people right they get fired uh, or they get political persecuted, or, they, or or you know you have to, they they get bribes and and the criminals bribe them and they get released and that's how it works. Um, I'm very thankful of the U.S. justice system because it, it is it is really an example to the world. Uh, the common law that that is in the United States is is a cornerstone of preser- preserving prior property rights, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it's a relief that the government can't come. And, and just take away everything you have without you having your day in court, right? Um, so many foundations in this country that represent you legally for free to protect your rights. So many constitutional um, uh, lawyers who are there just to protect the constitution and that's their whole interest. That's incredible. What other countries have this? Yeah, that, that is special. And even on a smaller level, I want to give a shout out to FIRE. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, they're they're non-political. And so they don't just support conservative students. They just happen to keep getting a lot of conservative students that need help. The same with teachers. Uh, but when I had that situation at Wichita State University, where a student senator was being forced to either resign by a certain time or be charged with a violation of code of conduct for promoting white supremacy, this was all because she included me in a women's appreciation post for Women's History Month. Uh, we reached out to FIRE and they provided not you know, legal representation, but they more so, they had an entire interview with her and they wrote an entire legal analysis, uh, very long legal analysis to explain. And she brought that with her to the next council meeting. And it was just so helpful for her. And she didn't have the resources to pay for somebody to do that. Uh, but it, it does remind me of how thankful we should be for the system here, even just charity in general, I mean, because I think they are a nonprofit, but that was wonderful. Uh, speaking of what you said, though, about protecting somebody's right to property, I'm sure you've heard this before, but most democratic socialists will tell you that we aren't going to end up like Venezuela. First of all, they say Venezuela is like an X percent capitalist and they have an X percent of privately owned companies. So I try and explain to people that well, they just put their cronies in charge of these private companies and then they still basically run them. Uh, But they tell us that Venezuela isn't a good example of socialism. It's actually Nordic Europe. And making sure young Americans understand what it means to actually seize the means of production, to actually nationalize an industry, that's best done, I would say, by people like you who have experienced it personally and, and can attest to that. So can you just touch on that subject in general and what that means to you, what that looked like when it was implemented in your country? Yes. Um, well, first, you know, some people claim that, oh, you know, X percent of Venezuela is private. They have no source for that. That's absolutely just bonkers. There's, there's <laughs> you know, t- t- tell me the source. What is the source? Of this? And my favorite is it's always a random number. Like one time I was told 27 percent of their companies are private. Like, what? I don't care. I mean, <laughs> And that's the thing, you know, socialism is not a black and white thing. You don't just become socialist by flipping one switch. It's a gradual thing. Mm-hmm. You know, North Korea is on one extreme of the most socialist you can get, where the government literally gets inside your home, where there's absolutely no private property. And then on the other extreme might be some place like Singapore, right, where, you know, the, the government has almost no role in the economy or, or Hong Kong before the, the Chinese are now invading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the question is, where in that scale do you want to be? 
there's so much more prosperity at one end of the scale and there's no prosperity at the other. So I'm not saying that we need to abolish the government. I'm not an anarchist, you know, being pro free markets is being pro the government having institutions that work like the judicial system, like the police, like the military to protect you from foreign invaders, <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, co communities, the uh, churches, you know, our tax system, you need to fund those essential things of the government in some way. The idea is to do it as efficiently and, and less hurtful as possible, but you do need some taxes, right? Um, so we're not anarchists. Um, and in Venezuela, the big problem was that when Chavez came to power and even before him, the government grew in ways that are just unprecedented, never even done here or, or in other countries, nationalizing the oil industry when that happened in the 70s. What happened to the oil industry of Venezuela when it was nationalized? Production peaked before it was nationalized and then it just went down even before Chavez. It went up in the 90s when they partially privatized it because this is the thing with private property. When you own something, you wanna preserve it and you wanna make money, right? What does the government want to do when they own something? They wanna keep voters happy. And how, what, what, are the, what is the incentive of politicians? Get reelected. So they have a short time, time span of incentives. They just care about the next four years. Private companies, owners, you care about the long term. You want to make money for the long haul for your life and sometimes for your children. Sometimes it's beyond your lifetime. So that's why private property creates that incentive. That's why, you know, when you, you keep your home, uh, the, the grass is well cut because you want to keep it nice. But what do you see in public housing? There's no maintenance because nobody owns it. Even when you rent, some people think, well, it's not my place. I'm not going to take care of it because you don't own it, which is why property is so empowering. Yeah. I mean, I'm moving into my house right now and I do not want a single dent or ding on the walls as I'm moving things in. But with my apartment, I'm like, eh. Just like shoving things through because of what I'm there for seven months. And so it, it's like, okay, maybe they'll find me like $15. It's very short sighted. Uh, but did you hear any of this? Like usually the lie, so many people fall for this of, oh no, it's not the government taking over or owning it. It's the people that deserve to own it. And the people own and control things under socials. And they also use collective ownership, worker ownership. They say the workers, the people deserve to own the product that's making the money uh, and they deserve the profits. They deserve to make the decisions. Did you hear that from the Chavez regime or, or was that a little earlier or later than you? Uh, can you explain how that went down in the country? Yeah, that's exactly what they said. They said that this would be for the workers and some of the businesses they nationalized, they gave to the workers of those businesses. Um, and look, the people own the means of production in the United States. You know, the owners are people, we're human beings, we're all yes. people. So Bingo. <laughs> the, the question of the socialists is which people they want them, they want to own the, the things right. because people will always own them. Yeah. Um, well, that's what, like, when you look at capitalism versus socialism, who do you want to have the power, the government or the people? And what's so frustrating is they say no capitalism, all the business owners and all of the CEOs have the, the power. Yes, those are people, not the government. Well, but, you know, <laughs> let's say that you want the workers of a company to mm -hmm. own the company. That exists in the United States and that existed in Venezuela. They're, they're called cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know people who worked in, in a... Um, uh, security cooperative 
for example, and it was the same security men who owned it and they elected their own board and then they shared the profits. So, okay, they were all invested. Now there's profit sharing in the United States now where many workers, especially in the auto industry, receive shares of GM and, and other companies. That is ownership. Yeah, and that's cool. I honestly, that's okay. when the government yeah. comes and takes over a business and then gives it to the workers, people who were not prepared for this, had no experience, what, what happened in Venezuela when, when they gave it to them? The company stopped running. And because the government had a hand in the involvement, what did they want to do? Let's keep voters happy by hiring many more people that we can afford and by um, not increasing prices when we need to. So let's keep prices very free below cost. What happened to those estate enterprises? They went broke. The government started subsidizing them, printing money, creating inflation, and everybody got was worse off. The workers were not producing. Everybody was just lying around. And, and that's not the way to run our society. No, no. And I, I always used to think that this was a little, you know, overused and it doesn't work. But the more I have to deal with government offices, like the more I have to go to the DMV, the more I have to go to the USPS, I just think, how can people experience this and say, yes, I want this to handle things like my health care that I really want to be as efficient and effective as possible, uh, especially when it has to deal with me or my loved ones, my family members, uh, livelihood. So it definitely makes me nervous to know that that's what people are talking about in America now. Like for Texas, right now i thought about this because the energy company is a collective uh whatever the proper term is but they're local collective companies and so apparently we all get like checks for five dollars <laughs> uh, like every like randomly all of the people in the neighborhood will get a check for a certain amount but it's like five bucks and so you could argue of like is that the most efficient effective way to run a business to have it be collectively owned by everybody sure maybe it is i don't really understand the economics behind that one so i'll look into it but when it comes to things like healthcare, where what the people aren't going to have ownership in a system that's run by the government, especially when it comes to healthcare. So what does it look like in a country when the government fully takes it over, when we have a system like Medicare for all? And this is the kind of stuff that Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the Democratic Socialists of America, Justice Democrats, Sunrise Movement, all of these leftist groups that are growing that are in support of people like the Squad, AOC, and the Radical Left, Senator Ed Markey, etc., this is the kind of policy they're pushing and they will not stop until it's actually implemented in America. Yeah. Did you have this in Venezuela, government controlled healthcare? Yeah, we did, uh, you know, government hospitals uh, and there were a disaster. One of my, well, my pediatrician, when I was a kid, you know, she worked in a government hospital too. And, you know, just the lack of supplies, the, the terrible hygiene. But, you know, I think that that's, you know, let's say that they wanted to do something like in Europe, right? Not like in Venezuela. The problem with Venezuela was that Add to the government healthcare the price controls of medicine, so there were no medicines, and that affected everybody, pro public or private, right? Um, and so that's why today, you know, people in Venezuela who get cancer have no way to get treatment. So disease who was previously treatable became a death sentence, and not just cancer, which is a very serious disease. Uh, you know, malaria, dengue. Um, Things that are very common because Venezuela is a tropical country with mosquitoes. Um, so it, it's just very sad. You know, children with diseases that were previously eradicated that are coming back. Uh, the or World Health Organization, I'm not a big fan of them, but they, they said that um, polio might be, do a comeback in Venezuela. Polio that had been eradicated in the world. Um, and that would be a disaster, not just for Venezuela, but the rest of the planet that will get the diseases too. 
Um, it really proves these ideas are archaic. They aren't, you know, they're big. But it's happening in the United States. The veterans healthcare system. How how is that serving the veterans of this country? It is not at all. That is, that is government healthcare. And want to know what a good point about the VA was that I heard um, people were talking about, oh, when you have the government control something, it gets rid of greed. It gets rid of people's desire to make a profit and stuff like that. But in reality, the corruption from the veteran hospitals was so bad because people wanted to reach their goals with numbers. They were fudging the numbers on how many veterans were dying and getting certain issues uh, having to be dealt with. They were fudging the numbers, the employees, government employees, because they wanted to get bonuses at the end. So it was all driven by their desire to make more money, but just through the government system of making more money. (laughs) And so they ended up with veterans who were killing themselves and dying on wait lists. And it's, it's just a great example. Human greed exists no matter what. You have to provide a check on that. You have to provide a way to balance it and hold bad actors accountable. Because I honestly think there's going to be bad people no matter what. You cannot avoid that. And so you need to create a system that protects as many people as possible and allows us to hold bad actors accountable. Uh, did you ever have to go and ex- like get health treatment or anything in Venezuela and you don't have to say like details like that, but did you ever have a situation where you clearly saw that this is not the kind of way you're supposed to be treated with a problem there? Yeah. One time, you know, I, I, you know, I, I left at 17. I didn't have any major medical problems. Thanks be to God during my, my youth. Um, but you know, when I, before I came to the U S I had to get some vaccinations that I didn't have before. That's a requirement to, to, uh, travel here and, and for universities. Mm-hmm. And I went to a government clinic, uh, they give them away for free. Uh, let me tell you, this government clinic, uh, looked more like a chicken farm than a government clinic. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, the, the, it was ground, like ground earth. That was the floor. It was not, you know, wood or or ceramics or whatever no it was the ground earth imagine the hygiene in that and and everything so bad everything looks so so dirty that i wondered if i would get a disease by going there rather than 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 save and so many people died in government hospitals and even in private my great uncle he died in a private hospital because there was not enough um like the the ventilation was not filtering the germs. And then he got a lung infection that he didn't have when he went to the hospital and he died because of the hospital lung infection. Jeez, I'm sorry. So what were you saying too about um, the big failure was more so the price control on the prescriptions? Is that what it was? Yes. So the government, you know, the, as they created all these welfare programs and they financed them through deficit spending. And when I say deficit spending, I mean something between 10 and 20% of GDP per year deficits. Uh, the United States, for, for, for example, only had that size of a deficit a couple of years during World War II. And, and that resulted in price controls and it was terrible. And this year with the COVID pandemic, with all this spending. Uh, so we're entering the red territory, and I hope we go back to regular spending soon. Um, so Venezuela had that level of deficit for years, and the central bank lent the government money with by printing it, uh, created so much inflation that the regime said that to fight inflation, uh, and that was caused by the greedy capitalists, not by their own policies, but by the greedy capitalists. Clearly, they're just so greedy in Venezuela and not the rest of the planet that only we have inflation. Um they put price controls. So for example, my aunt had a, another aunt of mine, I have so many family members. So I'm just going to say aunt and uncle and whatever. 
um, she had a shoe, a shoe store. So she sold shoes, um, you know, in a, in a, in a, a mall, right? And the government would come in and tell her everything marked down 30%. Like the IRS guys that would come in, 30% off on all your products. Because why? Because we say so. And if you don't want that, then we can take them all. Don't worry. And, that's, and that happened very, very often. So what, what's the, the incentive? Businesses closed down. Her business did too, because she couldn't make a profit. And you're not going to continue working at a loss. And that happened for drug makers. So Pfizer, the vaccine maker, was producing drugs in Venezuela before Chavez. Chavez imposed price controls, currency controls. And what did Pfizer do? Pfizer left Venezuela in the early 2000s. Fiat Chrysler made cars, manufactured cars in Venezuela. In, my, in the city that my parents lived when I was a kid, La Victoria, in, in, in Aragua State, a smaller town. They left the moment Chavez started with their controls too. So that is what happens. Um, and, and so that's why price controls are terrible. Here in the US, you see how some politicians are actually trying to put price controls on drugs. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. I don't, I, you, it's okay if you're not an expert on this, but I am kind of curious if you know anything about it because it's quite the topic these days. Yes, I think that, look, it, you have to look at these things carefully and, and see why is our drugs expensive for some treatments and how, you know, what's our ultimate goal first? You know, whether you think that drugs are expensive or not, what's your goal? That everybody who needs them can afford them. So what is the most effective way to achieve that goal? Perhaps it's not to put a price control that risks American innovation, that risks, you know, having shortages. Perhaps the best way to do this is simply by giving money to the people who need it the most. Why do we need to have Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, children's health insurance program, all these programs when we could just have one thing that helps only the neediest? You know, this is common sense. This is not left or right. This is not uh, Democrat or Republican. This is common sense. Why do we need to have duplicative programs that help people that don't need it and bankrupt our nation? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's the thing. We're made to seem so cold hearted when in reality, we do want to help people that are down. We want to give them a hand up. We want to help them be able to participate in society because this is amazing. Like the middle class in America, even lower middle class, we are so blessed. We, I'm so thankful. I grew up probably like lower middle class, I would say. And I'm so thankful for that experience because I understand what others have gone through and are going through in our world. And I'm just so appreciative. And I wish that that concept of gratitude could be brought back to young Americans. Uh, and I hope that people's stories like yours will continue to open people's eyes that are our age, especially. Uh, but can we transition into talking about what the heck made you want to leave your home country? Because I left my home state and that was enough for me. I hope I don't have to do it ever again and make such a big move. I drove from New York to Texas and, oh my gosh, I'm surprised I was not murdered. You did the whole thing, but 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger. What was that like? And why would you make such a drastic decision? I mean, at 17. Right. Look, I... I... I saw what was happening and that it was going to continue and I didn't see an end to the regime. And obviously, you know, I was right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 2021 and it's still not an end to the regime. Uh, they're just more and more powerful. You know, the, the thing with, with socialism is that there's just no opportunity, right? What would have been my life in Venezuela? If I had, you know, graduated college, um, you know, if I was doing a PhD there or whatever, 
I, you know, the best thing I could have hoped for is being able to feed myself. And that's, that's not a life to hope for. And so that's why young people in Venezuela overwhelmingly want to leave. 75% of people under 25 there, according to a poll by Mega Analysis, uh, and I might have the age wrong, it might not be 25, but it's the young category, um, wanted to leave the country. Imagine if 75% of, of young people in your country want to emigrate. It's, it's incredible, right? Uh, and 5 million people have left already of 30. That's the equivalent of 40 million people living in the United States of 330 uh, million. It's, it's incredible. So I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I, I had to do it. Uh, the, the reason I wanted to come to America was that, right? The, the quality of education, but you know, mainly the sharing the American values. And that's why I, I love this country so much. It's, it's the country where I think that it's the least likely that it will become a socialist country. So it's kind of like a hedging of my own opportunities too, that I don't want to leave that again, because I knew people who had to leave it twice. In high school, I had a math professor who was Cuban and he escaped Cuba in the seventies to Venezuela. And now he had to escape Venezuela for Spain. And let me tell you in Spain, it's happening. Like they, they, it's, it's <laughs> terrible. much worse than here. Oh, so, no. and, and when I came here, um, you know, it's, it's been such a, a great experience. Um, the culture is different, right? But you adapt to it and, and you take the good things and you keep the, the things that you like. Um, and so I, I, I've loved it. Like, yeah, I have nothing to complain. Okay. That's, I mean, that's an amazing story. First of all, that brings up, you mentioned like we have a different culture here. Is it similar in Venezuela when the left was coming to power? What we're seeing in America today is this weird attack on the American family, the nuclear family structure. So we saw it by Black Lives Matter. They said they want to get rid of capitalism and replace the nuclear family structure with uh, community raising. They said that kind of language. The DSA has put out similar language and the Socialist Party, the actual you know political party of America for the you know, diehard socialists, they said that pregnancy is a tool of oppression, that capitalism burdens women by forcing us to stay home and be little slaves to our husbands and our children, and we must free women, and that means ending the nuclear family structure. They even propose things like a surrogacy system in order to make it so that women don't have to have their own kids, and we just have a government surrogacy program. It's insane stuff. Did they even talk about that back then in Venezuela? I mean, I didn't hear anything about this really no. in Cuba. I know that there was some anti-religion kind of stuff, but what was it like in Venezuela or was it more so just economic? Yeah, no, the, that wouldn't fly in America. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The nuclear family is so much more important even in Latin America than in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so a big cultural difference, for example, is that here, uh, kids move out of their parents' homes at 18, usually, or, you know, and go to college and live on, on campus rather than with their parents. That happens for a lot of people. That does not happen in Venezuela. That does not happen in Latin America. You live with your parents until you get married. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, that honestly used to be the case. Like, I remember in America, I don't know if it's just our economy, the way that our society is adapted and advanced. I would say, you know, advancement doesn't always equal actual positive advancement. But like, I remember watching Father of the Bride. Have you seen that movie? It's I super haven't. cute. And it was just like back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the concept was that, you know, you are with your family. And then the, the boy comes and he asks your father for your hand in marriage. And then it's, it's very traditional. And then you move into a house after you get married. Like there's always that image of the husband carrying the new bride into the front door and it's their new house and stuff that has 
completely ended in America. <laughs> so it's kind of weird because I feel like our generation is really the first one. We see this happening in the movies from just a couple decades ago. And that's really the norm that, that was pitched to us. And then now we're growing up and that's so far from the case that it's kind of depressing because the rom-coms of the early 90s are just completely eliminated from possibility in America today. Um, but that's interesting because a lot of people attack, you know, the the mass immigration that we're seeing. Obviously there's a crisis at the border, but they're so quick to assume that the immigrants that come are going to align left. In fact, they're more traditional, conservative, family-oriented, and religious the way conservatives in America are, but they're going to come and they're being told by the left that the left is like their saviors and that they're the ones welcoming them in. And so it really is all about the kind of messaging that they're getting and uh, especially the message from the left. And so that is a real shame. And I think there are great people fighting back. But at the end of the day, people south of America are quite honestly, more aligned with conservatives, I would say. 100%. Well, look, there's um, uh, the Pew Research Center has a poll about from immigrants in California. Mm -hmm. And they show that immigrants in California are more likely to say they're conservative and less likely to say they're liberal than Californian residents themselves. Uh, However, they're more likely to vote Democrat. The question is, why are immigrants saying that they're more conservative, but then voting Democrat? Look, I think it's the messaging. It is the messaging that the right is not being as welcoming to immigrants and the left is is trying to to be. In Colombia, you see the opposite happening. It it has been the right of center government that has welcomed uh, 2 million Venezuelan refugees. And guess who are opposing the refugees? It is the, the leftist. So what happens? The Venezuelan immigrants overwhelmingly approve of the right-wing government that that Colombia has. So it is it is about that, you know, equal conditions, uh, equal messaging about immigration between both major parties. And immigrants are more conservative. Um, so I think it's you know we need to exploit that and, and give better messaging and and be more welcoming towards people who come from Venezuela or from other places, right? Because we know what it is. It is not true that people from socialist countries are going to be socialists here. There's a reason that we're leaving, yeah, mm. that we don't, we don't want right. that. Well, and on top of that, people that grow up in America are so privileged and they can't even see that. They're blind to how, you know, ungrateful they really are for the greatness that we have in America. And I think that's so important too, because when you consider the immigrants that are coming over, they still have their core values of hard work, of willingness to put the work in to achieve results. All of those basic values as humans that we're kind of losing in America because we are so privileged and we have everything so handed to us these days. I think that's another trait that we should consider, hopefully as even as these immigrants come, even if the left is so positive with messaging to them and they teach them that they are the only welcoming ones of them, hopefully the actual behavior and policy proposals and long-term messaging of the left freaks these immigrants out. And they're just like, whoa, 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 we don't actually align with you at all. Because I think that's what's happening with most Americans today too, that usually see the left in a positive light. Um, But again, fingers crossed. I can really only hope for that one and hope that as a movement, we get better with our messaging on that. Um, now, you know, we talked about you coming to America and stuff. I'd love to close it off by just talking about some of the stuff going on in our country. We see the rise of Black Lives Matter. We see Antifa rioting in the streets. I've seen a lot of comparisons from people from Venezuela saying that Antifa reminds them of the Chavistas, uh, the Collectivos. Is that true? Do you see any other similarities right now with what we're facing in America? I mean, packing the court, for example, lots of weird stuff that's going on in our country today. 
Yes. Um, so in Venezuela, there's a, there are some organizations called colectivos, and there's also just criminal gangs, but the colectivos are leftist uh, armed groups, usually motorcycles, uh, and they terrorize people who oppose the regime politically. Uh, and they go into neighborhoods, they shoot them up, they destroy them. So yes, in that sense, Antifa is like the colectivos. Uh, the colectivos are just m more armed, uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I guess that they, you know, we could be headed in that direction with Antifa if we don't, you know, end them, which is what, what the rule of law should be. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that similarity. I see also the similarity of the, the discourse of the left of just giving everything for free of, you know, Joe Biden wanting, you know, I, I didn't, not even I thought that Joe Biden was going to be as radical as he is, especially on spending. Mm -hmm. And I know some people don't want to talk about spending, but the reality is that that's our money. I pay taxes, you pay taxes, the people watching this pay taxes, and we're going to pay a lot more. And there's, there's a difference between them going on their lifestyle however they want, and another one is us paying for it, and, and we having to be forced to pay for, for those terrible policies. And we're going to have to pay for those policies if we don't stop them now. So I, I see that uh, as a big risk to the economic future of all of us. And as you say, economic power is political power. And, and what's going to happen when the American people become poor because of this um, terrible policies. I don't want that. I want everybody to be rich, right? And that's why I support free markets. Sure. Now, a big difference that I see is that there's people like us that know what's happening and that we're warning it. Yes, in Venezuela, we had some Cubans warning about it that, oh no, you know, Chavez is not going to be like Venezuela. But Venezuelans did not have the movement that we have. Uh, all the people who are concerned about socialism. And that's what gives me hope in this country. Venezuelans didn't have a constitution that was over 200 years old. Venezuelans had just reformed it. It was a democracy that was just for 50, for 40 years. That 40 years old democracy. America has a, a much longer history of protecting freedom, a court that defends freedom. So what do we need to do? Defend the court, right? We cannot let them pack the court. That would be a big problem. Um, and then, and then we need to win based on good policies. You see it, the red states are succeeding, the lowest unemployment rate in the country. South Dakota is 2.9, Utah is 3%, Nebraska is 2.9%. That was back in March, now it's April. Mm -hmm. We're doing well. What's happening in New York? What's happening in California? People are fleeing to our states. So we need to implement these policies at the national level. Double down on free markets, not back down because you want to appease the left or because you, you know, you want to control society with, you know, some people who want to promote their vision of society using government, that's not going to work. Just give people back control. I love that. And I mean, this has been an insane last year or even longer now at this point. I mean, we're one year or more into this whole COVID mess, uh, but it's really opened a lot of people's eyes and back to that, that basic statistic I always mention, only five to 6% of people our age trust the government. And so as we see the rise in the size of government, hopefully that is continuing to shock them to see what they're capable of. Because I think a lot of people are starting to understand where the limits of government should be and the fact that we, an authority should not be able to tell us to do this or to not do this. Uh, so I'm pretty hopeful about this. And your message makes me actually really excited 
just considering the fact we do have such a strong infrastructure. We have a great history of protecting freedom, defending freedom over 200 years of it now. And, and that's something we should really credit ourselves with and look to moving forward that we do have that stability. Um, and the infrastructure, you're right. Venezuela didn't have the kind of infrastructure we have with the conservative movement. And even just with, you know, the light libs, light dems, I'm, I'm thankful for them too, because they are capitalists and classical liberals. That rising faction of the authoritarian leftists, that's what needs to be handled right now. But if we get people back onto that base, that that growing base for progress and an acceptance of other ideas, opposing viewpoints, and then rooted in capitalism and classical liberalism, we're going to continue to thrive. Daniel, uh, do you have one last message that you want to give to everybody watching uh, moving forward? Because people are pretty worried, they're concerned. And then also tell us how we can connect with you and how we can support you moving forward. Yes. Well, my, my message to everybody who's concerned is that just you know complaining or just being sad or being concerned about it is not going to fix things. Uh, we can take action and it's good to be concerned, but be positive about it because people respond more better to positivity than to negativity. And you don't want to, you know, convince young people by just repeating the same things. We have to present a free market alternative. So get involved in your local community. Show the world that conservatives, that people who believe in free markets, even if you're not conservative, even if you're a moderate Democrat, join with other people who think like you. Volunteer. Uh, be a good member of the community. Raise your children right. Uh, you know, uh, fight back in your schools if they're trying to indoctrinate them. That in your community, something you can do by yourself. That's going to show people around you who are, you know, very leftist that, you know, perhaps this person is not as crazy. You know, he has a family. He volunteers in this community. He, he's charitable, a charitable person. This is, this is a, a good friend. Be friends with people who think different from you. That's so important. Uh, you know, if you are a radical leftist and, and you're watching this, be friends with people who think different than you. Just like I, I, ha I have a friend who's communist, just like you have your, your previous roommate and, and she's communist and she's a good friend. Um, and, and, and you see and, and you change minds about people that way. And it's good. It's a happier way to live life. You're going to be a happier person and that's going to, you know, just make you succeed better. But it's also going to make America a better country. So that's my message. And, and if you want to connect with me, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel DiMartino, just my name and last name. Uh, you can also check out my website, DanielDiMartino.com, where I have all my interviews. You can email me. Um, I'm going to be moving to New York in July, so we can meet up if you want. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm looking forward. So little Daniel meetups. I love that. We'll link those uh your website and your Twitter, your socials in the description of this. If anybody wants to go and check you out and connect with you, thank you so much for being on this. We really appreciate it. And like I said, you're one of the original people to participate in this movement with us. And we really appreciate you sharing your story and your insight from your personal firsthand experience. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. I'm honored.